I'm Gregory Berg. The following interview with best-selling author John Grogan was recorded back in 2005, immediately after the initial publication of his blockbuster bestseller, Marley and Me, one of the most beloved books about dogs ever written. Enjoy. Well, I don't think you have to be a dog owner, although it probably helps just a little bit in order to thoroughly enjoy a brand new book by award-winning columnist John Grogan. Uh, he has written a book which uh, is, is a New York Times bestseller called Marley and Me, Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog, published by William Morrow. Uh, Marley uh, is an <laughs> incredible dog, uh, a Labrador retriever who really turns house and home and family life upside down for John Grogan and his wife uh, in many ways which they never began to uh, anticipate. Uh, this is ultimately a hilariously funny and also very heartwarming and, and poignant story, uh, and it really gives us uh, every side of what it means to take a dog into one's life and home. Uh, John Grogan, as I say, is an award-winning columnist uh, currently with the Philadelphia uh, Inquirer. And I'm really glad that for the next few minutes I can speak with John Grogan about his new book, again called Marley and Me, Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog. John Grogan, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. I'm glad to be here. I want to ask you just briefly, if I may, about uh, your life and work as a columnist. Um, I'm guessing, first of all, that a few of these wonderful stories about Marley have perhaps made made their way in, into your columns? Uh, that's exactly right. Um, right from the start after we got Marley, I pretty quickly after, you know, I started noticing this exuberant behavior of his and that he wasn't like other dogs. And he started creeping into my newspaper column. Um, and I, it was an interesting phenomenon. I started noticing when I wrote about Marley, my responses from readers would just skyrocket. He was a very popular uh, character in, in my writing. And so over, over the length of his 13-year life, um, there were a number of times when I came in mostly to make fun of him, quite honestly. And, to, and a lot of people, a lot of dog owners uh, responded to that and, and related to that. And, um, and then at the end of his life, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I, after he died, I, I really felt in, in my heart, you know, I really need to tell the other half of the story, not just about all his antics and topsy-turvy, crashing-through-life type of behavior, but also everything he brought into the relationship and the joy and the humor and the laughter and the empathy and all those things. So I, I wrote that column in uh, about three weeks after, after I lost him. And, um, and I got this huge response from readers. I mean, like 800 responses um, came in, uh, which is, you know, on a good day, normally I might get anywhere from a few dozen to a uh, hundred or two. Um, and so that, that's when I really knew that there was a bigger story to tell here, and, and that's why I started writing the book. And I'm guessing that you probably welcomed the, the chance to be working in the format of a full-length book versus uh, a, a column with its incessant deadlines and, and uh, word limitations and so on. I, I, I imagine this in some ways to be a very freeing experience to be writing for a book. Well, it, yes, it was very freeing and also kind of terrifying starting out. Um, you know, for about half of my career, I've been writing as a columnist, which is very regimented. There's three times a week, exactly 653 words. Um, so I have to come in, and, and I write as close to that as I can get, and then I have to trim and winnow and get it down so it exactly fits to the line. And then suddenly, I'm, it's just like an open-ended time deadline and space deadline. Uh, what I found myself doing was picturing the book as a series of columns. I wrote it in 30 chapters. And I, I sort of mentally pictured each chapter as being the equivalent of four or five columns. And so psychologically, I kind of geared myself up for it that way. It's like, well, over the course of a year, I write this many words in installments as columns. So I, if I can think of a book that way, it's not that overwhelming to get a 90,000-word book done. 
Um, and so I, so I went at it that way. And, um, and I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning uh, to write before I'd go in and write my column for work. And I would write like from 5 to 7 every morning. And I, I basically I was knocking off a chapter a week. And 30 weeks later, I had a book. <laughs> and a wonderful book at that. In the acknowledgments, you, you really give lavish praise to your mother for, uh, for paying a, a really important part in you and in all of this. Tell us just a little more about that. My mom uh, is a great uh, sort of almost stereotypical Irish Catholic mother, you know, the hovering presence, um, always worrying about her children and the good cook and all of those things, uh, kind of the matriarch of our family. My father was more the quiet um, person. Um, my mother also had this incredible gift for storytelling. <clears throat> she um, could and she could and she did on a regular basis spin these wonderful tales about her life and her childhood and her childhood friends, these people who had drifted into obscurity and we would have never known about except for my mother's stories and these wonderful characters from her life growing up in the Depression in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is. And, and she would weave these wonderful stories at the dinner table and at bedtime and just from my earliest age, I remember my mother using her own life, autobiography, um, to, to really entertain and fascinate us. And I think that lesson just intrinsically sort of settled into me, into my bones, without even realizing it. And as I was growing up, as early as like grade school, I found myself doing the same thing, kind of holding court on the playground and kind of spinning these tales out of things that had happened in my life. So I've always loved autobiography and the memoir uh, form and uh, genre, and I I do give a lot of credit to my mother for planting that seed. Hmm. Um, hearing the term storyteller brings this question to mind: How much of what we read about in this book is true, or 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 true at least in the in the way that we might most strictly think about that? Um, well, I would say, and from my perspective, come, and everything comes through the lens of the writer or the speaker, of course, um, it's 100% true. There's nothing fictionalized or fabricated or exaggerated. Now, another observer is someone tagged along for 13 years in my life and was in my home every day with us. They might have seen it differently, but um, from my perspective, this is a very honest um, sometimes painfully honest, rendering of, of our life, warts and all. We're talking with John Grogan, and we're talking about his new book called Marley and Me, Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog. One of the reasons the book gets that subtitle is because of something you tell us about in the preface, the fact that you grew up with a, a truly wonderful dog named Sean. Yes. And so in some respects, this dog, which you and your wife uh, purchased, uh, ended up suffering by comparison in some respects. Just tell us a little bit about Sean. Well, when I was 10, my, my father took me out to this farm way out in the country in Michigan where I was growing up to pick out my own puppy. And I brought home this little mongrel mutt dog um, that uh, became St. Sean, as I call him. He was one of those sort of perfect childhood dogs, the perfect boyhood companion. He was always at my side. He was just sort of naturally well-behaved. Um, we didn't really formally work on him very hard to train him, but he was, like, just never did anything wrong. He was a, a great dog, at least in my memory. And so, you know, as a young married couple, where Jenny and I are newlyweds, she grew up with a really great dog, too. And we thought, well, you know, we had these wonderful dogs as children. Uh, you know, how hard can it be to have a dog now that we're adults and we're all grown up and everything. Right, should be should be easier. It should be easy <laughs> as pie. You know, we've been through this. Of course, as children, all you do is the fun things with the dogs. You don't realize that your parents are are managing all the the substantial amount of, of work and energy that a dog requires. Sure, and of course, there's also a very strong connection which get which gets built between your family and Sean, and uh, you end the preface by. Uh, telling us about a, a phone call which you received uh, the night that that Sean finally died, and uh, 
Tell our listeners what your mother told you in that phone call. Right. Well, we got Sean when I was 10, and 14 years later, when I was 24, I was already out of college and working in my first newspaper job. Um, my, my parents called me to tell me that they had to put Sean down. You know, that was the, the part of dog ownership. It always ends with heart, heartache. You, these dogs have short lives compared to ours. Um, and I was slightly miffed with them that they didn't tell me in advance. I mean, so I could have come home. Or, or, but they, I think they realized that that would have just been more painful for me, and I was all the way on the other side of the state. Uh, my mother said to me, she said, you know, I've only seen your father cry twice in our marriage. In 50 years of marriage. Yes. Um, well, this, right. This was much later. Um, right. I, they hadn't been married 50 years at the time. Right. But um, the first time was when my sister, Marianne, was stillborn. It was my, my mother's second pregnancy. Um, they thought everything was fine right up until the delivery and the, and the baby was stillborn, and it was obviously devastating for them. And the second time was, uh, was the day they had to say goodbye to Sean. I mean, that really, in a nutshell, helps us understand just what, what a profound thing it can be when a family owns a dog, and I suppose maybe other kinds of pets, but certainly especially when one owns a, a beautiful, loving dog. Yeah, there's something, it's a very special relationship, and, and people who have never gone down that road and have never brought a dog into their lives have a hard time understanding it and, and, and can sometimes really roll their eyes at it. But these animals really do get in, they sneak their way into our hearts, and, um, and they really do become like part of the family. And rationally, we can say they're just pets, they're just animals, but emotionally, it's not that easy, you know. Even with a dog like Marley, who who really filled our life with a lot of a lot of trying moments, he was so, uh, you know, he was this big attention deficit, rambunctious goofball of a dog who just crashed through every day of his life. Um, it was very very hard to say goodbye to that dog. When you and your wife Jenny, in in the, into the second year of your marriage, decided to buy a dog, uh, it it had to do a little bit with plants, and it had a little bit to do with babies. Tell us how each of those matters figured into your decision to uh, sort of disturb your, your fairly idyllic and fun life with the presence of a dog. Right. Uh, we were newlyweds. You know, we, were, we just sort of passed our one-year anniversary, and we had, we'd bought our first house, this little tiny bungalow just a block off the water down in South Florida. And we'd fixed it all up, and we'd refinished the hardwood floors and got it just perfect, <laughs> of course. And, you know, great idea to bring in a 100-pound dog to share it with us, right? <laughs> uh, one morning I woke up, and Jenny wasn't in bed next to me, and I found her out on the back porch at our breakfast table pouring over the newspaper, and um, I looked over her shoulder, and she was circling dog ads. And I said, um, is there something I should know here? You know, we hadn't really discussed getting a dog um, and it all came down to a few weeks earlier, I had brought home a real pretty tropical plant uh, as a gift for her, just as a way of saying, isn't marriage great, you know? <laughs> and she loved it, and she loved the gesture, and then she promptly went on to kill the thing in about 10 days. Um, and, she, and she was just really sort of fretting, like, I can't even keep a plant alive. How am I supposed to be able to raise a baby? You know, we knew we wanted to have children, and she was really doubting her maternal abilities. And so she had it in her mind. You know, we always knew we eventually wanted a dog, too. And maybe we should get a dog and kind of practice. So if we make some really horrible mistakes, we won't make them on a child. <laughs> and that was kind of the, the way we ended up backing into uh, going to look at Marley. There was you, an you, ad from a backyard breeder. You summed it up. Kill a plant. Buy a puppy. Yeah, that's right. It made perfect sense in her mind. <laughs> and I went, you know, of course... Being the naive new husband I was, I said, "Well, we can we can look, but let's promise each other we won't make any rash decisions." You know, yeah, right. You know, you're going to walk into a room with eight little squiggly puppies and and expect to walk back out again without falling in love with it. You know, of course, we had our deposit down before we left. Right. You said as you saw these nine tiny uh, Labrador Retriever puppies, you said 30 seconds into this, uh, 
all all caution and 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 good rational sense had been thrown to the wind. And yep. you, you knew you were going to be walking. I up. knew I'd already lost that battle. There were a couple of things which now, uh, in hindsight, you realize should have been some warning signals. One of them had to do with the uh, the uh, owner of these puppies uh, when she was making the introductions uh, in terms of the mother and the father. Uh, one introduction which happened and one which didn't till later. Right. We um, had heard that... When you go to look for a puppy, you should see both parents. You know, it's always a good thing to have both parents on premises. That's a really good indication of the personality the puppy will take on. So we show up at this backyard breeder, and and the mother dog greets us at the door with the owner, and she's this beautiful, calm, sort of classic yellow Labrador retriever. Her name's Lily. And we get on our knees, and we pet Lily, and she's great. She's just got the perfect disposition. And I asked, so um, where's the father? And the owner it kind of clears her throat and, uh, and just demurs, like, oh, well, he's around here somewhere, you know. And then she's, I'm sure you want to see the puppies. And she just kind of brushes us uh, right into the next room. And, of course, as soon as we see the puppies, we're lost. Um, and it wasn't after, until after we, we put our deposit down and my wife and I are walking out to our car. We can have to come back five weeks later after he's been weaned to take him home. And we're, we're just getting to our car when I hear this horrible crashing noise coming from the woods outside their house. It sounded like something out of a 1950s slasher movie. You know, there was the heavy breathing and the panning and the crashing and the snapping. And we look up with terror on our faces, and out of the woods comes this rampaging, huge, yellow male Labrador <laughs> retriever with this odd gleam in his eye and froth all around his mouth, and he's covered in mud and burrs. He's been out just rampaging through the woods, and he barrels past us um, with his tongue hanging out and disappears around the corner. And I look at my wife, and I said, Oh, my goodness, I think we just met the dad. <laughs> I don't need to tell you which, which parent Marley took after. Right. It's also kind of interesting, uh, you know, you're shown these puppies, uh, they're asking $400 for the remaining female, $375 uh, for the males. And one of the dogs, which seems especially happy-go-lucky and, and joyous and is really getting into your face even more aggressively, <laughs> she says, that one there you can have for 350 <laughs> So Marley was also a bargain, and right. uh, it's almost, it's almost <laughs> like she knew bargain. something... She knew something you didn't know, maybe. Well, my wife is a, a total sucker for bargains. I mean, she loves garage sales, and she'll bring home things that, uh, that I don't want or need just because she got a really good deal on them. And she looked at me, and she said, Oh, honey, he's, a cl- he's on clearance. He's on sale. So that, that had some, something to do with it as well. I especially want you to tell our listeners about this thing called the scare test, which apparently your father had thought up uh, when they ultimately chose what became your, your, your childhood dog, Sean. Yes. Uh, um, well, my father, when I was a little boy, 10 years old, he took me to this farm, as I mentioned, to, to pick out a dog. And he said, you know, you don't want one of the timid ones. You want a dog that's got self-assurance and, and a strong personality and some confidence. So he said, do something that will, will scare them. And, and he suggested I rattle the front gate of the cage that they were in and to see which ones are not going to be intimidated by that. So with Sean, that's what we did, and, and we rattled the cage, and all the puppies went tumbling backward, and out of the pile came Sean, and he ran right up and jumped up and started licking my hands through the gate. It, it worked perfectly, my dad's technique. So with Marley, I kept insisting to my wife that we, we do this, and so we're in this room with these nine puppies, and and um, I kind of suddenly made a sudden move and slapped my hands and, and said, hey, and just a little startle. And it, it didn't really scare any of them. But, but one, one puppy, Marley, uh, came crashing right at us and attacked my shoelaces and rolled over on his belly and was chewing on my feet. And, and that was uh, how we ended up picking him. Hmm. Well, that scare test was the closest thing you did to any kind of uh, scientific study. Uh, before choosing Marley, you realized uh, later. You tell us in a, in a later chapter that uh, that that what most uh, most people do if they do this wisely is that they really do some research into various breeds and try to figure out 
the breed of dog which is likely to work the best for them and for their family life and their home setting and so on. You didn't do any of that and learned after the fact really what this breed of Labrador Retriever is all about. Right. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that our, our total scientific study leading into this was the portrayal of Labrador Retrievers in Gary Larson's cartoon, The Far Side. He always portrays these big, <laughs> dopey labs with their big, floppy ears as, as these charming, erudite animals. They can even talk, and they say the wittiest thing. So, of course, we just fell in love with, with labs. Um, they are, they're just absolutely beautiful animals. It's a great breed. But, I mean, the serious message behind this book is before you go down this road, you should do it with eyes wide open. Labs, what makes labs so special is they are extremely social animals. Um, they will give you every bit of their heart and soul and attention. But if you're not willing to give it back, they're going to they're gonna get a pound of your flesh one way or the other. I mean, they really demand your attention and your energy. And, and if, you're not, if they're not meant to be propped in the corner like a little piece of furniture. And if you're the type of owner who you should probably get a cat or at least a more docile uh, type of breed of dog, um, so, you know, for us, we went into it blindly, but, you know, we were young and energetic. You know, we were just turning, I think I was just turning 30 at the time. Um, so we had the energy to, to, to put into Marley. Um, well, speaking of energy, of course, Labrador Retrievers have lots of that, too. You, you tell us a little bit about how they've been bred to be working dogs, and, so, and that's one reason why they have just this seemingly limitless amount of, of energy and vitality. And, and power. They're very strong, muscular animals. Mar- Marley was 98 pounds at his, at his peak, and it was all muscle. There wasn't an ounce of fat on this dog because he was so nervous he burned every ounce of it off. Um, but, yeah, they were, you know, the Labrador Retrievers were first spotted up in Newfoundland where the fishermen would use them out in the, in the North Atlantic. They would dive off the boats, and they would swim out and pull the nets in and round the nets up, and they'd actually random fish that would float out of the net, they would go and they would retrieve them in this, you know, 36-degree North Atlantic water in big swells, and they would bring the individual fish back to the boat. And then they obviously evolved from there into hunting dogs, wonderful retrievers. You know, they go right in the middle of the wintertime into any body of water to bring back a duck or whatever has been has fallen. Um, so, yeah, that's their nature. And later in the book I describe, about five years into his life, I discovered that there are two sublines of Labrador Retrievers. The English line, which are mostly the dogs that you see in, in dog shows. And they tend to be blockier and smaller and also much calmer. And then there's the American line, also known as the field line of labs, which are bred for hunting and for retrieving. And the same qualities that make them so excellent in the field um, make them a real high-energy you know, mix to have in, in a family home. And I guess I don't have to tell you, Marley was an American line lab. He sure was. You say they were muscular and bred over the centuries to be inured to pain, qualities that served them well as they dove into the icy waters of the North Atlantic to assist fishermen. But in a home setting... Those same qualities also meant they could be like the proverbial bull in the china closet. They were big, strong, barrel-chested animals that did not always realize their own strength. Yep. Yes, I mean, that very much describes, I mean, you sort of picture having that powerhouse inside a two-bedroom home with beautifully refinished hardwood floors and, and wood windowsills and screens everywhere. Marley just, you know, he would just run and not even realize the screen was there and pop, it was pop right through it. It was like something out of a cartoon. There would be this Labrador-shaped rip in, in our, all the screens on our porch, uh, you know, and he just didn't even know he was going through it. <laughs> you, when you go to retrieve him, he's doubled in size, and uh, you actually have the interesting experience of settling into the house all by yourself. Your your wife was someplace else with relatives, I think. So you actually got things going on your own that first night. Right. Uh, my wife was invited to meet her her sister and her sister's family up at Disney World. And she was really torn because she wanted to be there to bring Marley home, our new puppy. 
And I, I assured her, I said, oh, go have fun. I'll take care of it. Secretly, I was really loving this because I knew that really a dog is going to bond primarily with one human, not, not two. There's, there's a hierarchy there. And I wanted first dibs on him, you know. So I, I brought this little puppy home, and uh, he walks in the house, and he explores everything. And um, everything's fine, except he looks up at me with this expression. To, it's basically the expression you see on the cover of the book, this quizzical-looking puppy face. And, and he's like, almost like he's asking, all right, everything's great here. I love the place, but where are my brothers and sisters? And so that night, I, you know, following sort of the conventional wisdom of what I'd read and, and did as a child, I put him in a, in a, like a cardboard box, a large cardboard box with blankets and a pillow and everything out in the garage. And he just cried miserably. And I'd walk back out and he'd stop. And I'd walk, I'd leave and he'd start crying again. So I made it about 45 minutes or so before I caved in and I, I carried him in the box into my bedroom and put it right next to my bed. And, and our first night together, I fell asleep with my arm hanging over the bed into the box, resting on his rib cage, and, hmm. and he he slept soundly beside me. I've I've had that experience twice in my life. With first when we bought our cocker spaniel, and uh, many years later when we bought our our golden retriever. And I have to say, in neither case did I uh, did I go quite as far as you did. And I mean, I ended up bringing him upstairs and. Uh, and and next to the bed and the whole bit, but I had not stopped to think about it in the way that you did. You you tell us that uh, uh, as you listen to that crying, uh, barely muffled by the concrete walls, um, you said even as you ra- after you wrapped the pillow around your head, I could still hear it. I thought of him out there alone for the first time in his life, in this strange environment, without a single dog scent to be had anywhere. His mother was missing in action, and so were all his siblings. I mean, I wish I'd been that empathetic. I mean, I just, I just did it to, to shut the, the puppies up. <laughs> right. But, uh, but you know, you, you, you were <laughs> humane enough and, and enlightened enough to, to think about it on a little more profound level. Really, how frightening, how bewildering that experience has to be for a young puppy the first time they are in a brand new home. Right. I mean, if you... And- you know, I hesitate to transfer too many human emotions to to a dog, even though, just by the nature of the relationship, you, you do that. But I mean, I, you know, you can only imagine. Uh, you know, this is uh, any living thing being just pulled out of its environment. Of course, they're going to be scared and and disoriented, and and that kind of marked my whole relationship with Marley. You know, we had this special empathy and relationship between us. He seemed to get me and understand my moods and emotions. And and I, despite everything about him that that earned him that title of the world's worst dog, um, I understood him and and came to love him dearly for it. We're speaking with John Grogan. His book is called Marley and Me: Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog. Uh, Marley grew at a furious pace, becoming taller and heavier and and stronger. And one of the things that was most, well, there were two, two things that were destructive, one on each end. One was that mouth in which he was constantly uh, chewing things, and the other was his uh, enormous tail. Well, yeah, and then and in between that were four enormous paws. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so he was, like, he was basically a one-dog wrecking crew. Uh, Marley, you know, Labrador retrievers, they're, they're retrievers, so they, they love to... They respond to any situation, panicky, happy, it doesn't matter, by grabbing the closest thing they can find and holding it in their mouth. And so Marley would do this, and he, would, he was, had made a horrible poker player. Whenever he was trying to hide something in his mouth, we could tell because his entire body would start wagging. It, he didn't just wag his tail. He started at the front, at the shoulders, and went back. His whole body would be wagging back and forth. Yeah, you said hip sashaying. <laughs> yes, right. And we called it. We had a name for it. We called it the Marley Mambo. And we would see him doing this, and we'd say, "Uh oh, he's doing the Marley Mambo again." We know what this means. So my wife and I would get him cornered, and we'd wrestle him to the ground, and I'd pry his jaws open, and there would always be something in there. Oftentimes, something of value. One one time, I pried his jaws open, and my paycheck. It was plastered to the roof of his mouth. <laughs> well, we uh, we find uh, 
uh, ourselves thinking about Marley uh, in, uh, and, and in his destructiveness you know, on a whole different level the first time you have left him home during a thunderstorm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Right. You know, South Florida is known, infamous for its horrendous afternoon thunderstorms, especially in the summer months. They roll in almost every day at right about 3 o'clock, and these big, huge thunder clouds come in over the ocean, and they lightning and thunder and heavy rain, and then they blow out and the sun's back out a half hour later. And poor Marley, if we were home, he would just, kind of meltdown. He was just always a nervous Nelly. Um, you know, he, the labs are supposed to be hunting dogs, and many of them just don't, don't even register gunshots or loud noises. Uh, but Marley was super sensitive to it. And if we were with him, he would melt down into this quivering, shaking, really pathetic, you know, pile of fur. But if we were not there, he would, you know, left alone in his panic and that little brain of his, he would start trying to den, to dig himself to safety. And the very first time, we had him out in the garage, which we thought was pretty much dog-proof. It was a big concrete one-car garage. Um, and I, opened my, I came up from work, and my wife was really upset. And she said, go look in the garage. And I opened the door, and there's Marley, all calm again, and, and sitting there. But his whole snout is covered in dried blood, and his paws are bloody. And then I sort of focus out, and the room is a total shambles. Uh, the paint is scraped off the concrete. The ironing board we had out there is shredded. The door leading into the garage um, looks like someone took a chipper shredder to it. There's just wood chips in like a 12-foot circle, half circle around the door. And he has gone two-thirds of the way through a solid wood door. The door jam, the wooden door jam, is totally missing from about three or four feet from the floor up. It's just gone, and there's um, just wood chips everywhere and blood because he was using his teeth and his paws in a total frantic panic. And this would mark Marley's um, behavior during th- thunderstorms for his entire life. Hmm. You talk about when you move into a new home in Boca Raton and uh, how a-, a similar thing happens there uh, in, uh, I think it was the laundry room where he had been kept during that, that storm. And uh, you say an entire wall was gouged open, obliterated clear down to the studs, plaster and wood chips and bent nails everywhere. Electric wiring lay exposed. Blood smeared the floor and the walls. It looked literally like the scene of a shotgun homicide. And... I mean, we, we try to imagine what it would feel like to open yeah. the door and be greeted by a sight like that. Right. I mean, I, I like to say if, if we could have removed Marley's thunderphobia from the equation, he would have just been a hyperactive, wildly energetic, and funny, goofy dog. But that behavior that he did in a panic um, really literally cost us thousands of dollars in repairs. I, I, you know, if anybody needs advice on, on wall repair, I'm an expert at it now. I really learned how to, how to fix drywall and, 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 do, and try to repair after him. He went through mattresses. He went through couches. Um, and it was really hard to be mad at him because he was doing it just out of sheer fear and panic. Well, and it's funny. I mean, obviously, Labrador retrievers, a lot of them do just fine around guns. Mm-hmm. But uh, here you said uh, you were lucky enough to end up with a with a lab who was mortally terrified of anything louder than a popping champagne cork. Right. A rough, a rough situation. You do try to get Marley trained, and, and in a couple of ways, actually, you are able to, to, to train him. But your first experience... Uh, in uh, in puppy class is certainly uh, a wild one, uh, which ends also fairly abruptly. Yes, it didn't it didn't go well as his, his first structured classroom experience. Uh, we when he was about uh, six or seven months old, um, in hindsight, probably too young for a dog of his rambunctiousness. Uh, we signed him up for obedience class and. I, I guess I don't have to tell you that it was just a, a topsy-turvy, you know, event from from start to finish. We lasted exactly two lessons before the the trainer called us up and told us that 
not to come back. I said, you're kidding. You're, are you kicking us out? And she finally said, yes, I'm kicking you out. It happens. <laughs> yeah, right. And, I, you know, I thought he was like the only dog in the world to get expelled from obedience class. Since writing the book, I've heard from hundreds of people with, with these big, goofy dogs. And um, many of them have had, had the same experience. We took Marley back um, about a year later when he was about 18 months old. And, and as I describe in the book, it was really out of necessity because he was just, we, by now we had babies and he was just really making life untenable for us given the stress of having new babies and sleep deprivation and all those things. And so I really was highly motivated to try to get this dog back on track. And we did graduate the second time around, seventh in our class. I try not to mention to people that there were only eight dogs in the class, but uh, we, we'll take that. <laughs> One of the best moments I think you describe is at that early class, and, and uh, your wife Jenny is the one who's trying to uh, uh, lead Marley around. Uh, and, and, and already he's far too powerful for that really to be to be done. You say all the other dogs were sitting placidly beside their masters at tidy 10-foot intervals awaiting further instructions. Jenny was fighting valiantly to plant her feet and bring Marley to a halt, but he lumbered on unimpeded, tugging her across the parking lot in pursuit of hot poodle butt-sniffing action. My wife looked amazingly like a water skier being towed behind a powerboat. I think for anyone who's had a big dog on a leash, they've had something of that experience, but I think you describe it especially well. Yeah, well, you know, my wife um, was probably about 115 pounds at the time, and, and Marley was quickly gaining on her. You know, he was gaining about 10 pounds a week, it seemed. And he was just, you know, he was just too strong for her, and, and he hadn't learned um, the, the controls yet. And we actually, we got kicked out after the instructor um, who was one of these very stern, no-nonsense types. Uh, she had this <coughs> theory that, you know, there was no, no such thing as a bad or untrainable dog, only weak-willed and hapless owners, and I guess that would be us. And so when we couldn't control him, she sort of impatiently held her hand out and said, give me the leash, I'll show you. Hmm. And so I handed the leash over, and he took off, and he, she almost knocked her off her feet, and she had to run to keep up with him, and, and that was... After that humiliation, she just that was it for us. So Mar- Marley, Marley's uh, education was, was short-lived. Uh, there are a couple of other wonderful, wild stories that we don't really get to talk about here that people are just going to have to read. One of them is that Marley actually makes it into a, into a motion picture. I, I won't say a major motion picture. It went directly to video, but it was kind of a wild, exciting experience. And, and uh, uh, you also describe... A, a, I think a couple of different incidents in which, uh, in this new community of Boca Raton, where you eventually lived, uh, you would uh, sometimes go to these cafes where people would be sitting out on the sidewalk on these uh, on these uh, small tables and chairs, their dogs placidly sitting at their feet, and you tried that at least once with Marley, with uh, rather disastrous results. Yeah, you know, Boca Raton is a sort of a hoity-toity, uh, moneyed community, and we lived in one of the only middle-class neighborhoods in this town. And so there was these really sort of upscale little sidewalk cafes with the wrought iron tables, and people would go there to be seen and see, and it was a whole kind of, you know, people-watching scene. And a lot of people would bring their little Boca designer dogs with them who would sit there very perfectly at the table. So we thought, well, you know, we're in Boca now. Let's, let's try to try out this new lifestyle. So we took Marley with us, and uh, we get to the t- we get a nice sidewalk table, and I hook his leash around the table, and we order our drinks. And Marley spots a little poodle across the uh, across the piazza there, and and off he goes with the table dragging behind him. And it was it was just the most embarrassing moment of our lives, I think. I I, I guess I, I said a couple of times you probably did that once. I'm guessing <laughs> that wasn't right. In fact, we came back. Uh, you know, we dragged the table back. And we finally got him under control. And and the waiter said, "Well, I'll bring you new place settings." And my wife said, "Oh, that's okay. We'll we'll just be leaving." <laughs> and we never, yeah, you know, we never did that again. It was just like you know, every, there were a lot of one-time experiences with Marley. We tried it once. And and it just didn't work with him, um, and that was his one and only experience at outdoor dining. Hmm. 
You talk about a couple of things which are actually very powerful and poignant experiences with Marley, the other side of the coin. Plus, of course, there are all these joyous days where Marley was a lot of fun to have. And then there were a couple of moments in your life where you saw Marley through entirely different eyes. One of them was a very frightening night uh, in your neighborhood. This is not in Boca Raton. It's where you lived before, where actually a stabbing occurs right on your block. Mm -hmm. And uh, you end up running outside to see what's going on. You hear the screams of a woman, and there are other neighbors taking off in pursuit of apparently her attacker and so on. And you eventually find her, you and Marley. Marley is right at your side, and you and your wife had kind of speculated about what he would do in any kind of a situation where the chips were really down. Uh, tell our listeners about uh, Marley and that, and that moment. Well, you know, it was it was an amazing moment, uh, an amazing night for us. Uh, my, like you said, my wife and I had always had this debate, you know, would, would this dog ever protect us if an intruder came into the house? Uh, we lived in a real changing neighborhood in West Palm Beach, and there was a lot of crime around us. And we always, I always thought he would just lick the person. You know, he was just this big, lovable dog. He didn't have a mean bone in his body. But on this night, we were both in bed, and this piercing scream fills the night and um i i would not have gone out without marley you know it's like he gave me that confidence um to have a 100 pound dog at your side i opened the door and i saw my neighbors running down the street and one of them yelled go to the girl she's been stabbed and they ran after the assailant who was running down the other direction and i showed up Two doors down from my from my house, there's this 17-year-old neighbor girl standing there bleeding in her driveway. She'd just been stabbed. She was still on her feet, and there was nobody around her. And I let go of Marley's uh, choker chain, and I just went to her. And as soon as I got to her and put my arm on her, she just collapsed in my arms. So I'm, I, you know, here I am in, in my boxer shorts, and I'm sitting on the sidewalk with this girl in my arms, wondering if she's bleeding to death, if she's going to die. And just waiting, like, where is the ambulance? Where are the police? Um, at a certain point, I looked up from her. I had forgotten about Marley and the excitement. And I looked up from her, and there was Marley about 10 feet in front of us in a total fighter's stance. His legs were spread. The fur was up on the back of his shoulder blades. His face was incredibly intense. And he wasn't looking at us. He was looking down the street away from us. And... At that moment, I just knew in my soul that if that knife-wielding assailant came back, he was going to have to get past the dog before he could get to us, and, and Marley would have fought him to the death. Another really powerful story, which I know a lot of people are talking about, is the story of the first pregnancy which you and your wife, Jenny, experienced uh, uh, a pregnancy which unfortunately uh, goes wrong at at 10 weeks when you go in for that first sonogram and uh, you describe how the technicians were unable to find a, a heartbeat and uh, slowly but surely it begins to dawn on all of you that this is a very serious sad situation and indeed uh, the the baby uh, is 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 not alive and what was so such a joyous possibility becomes uh, a very, very heartbreaking moment for uh, all of you. You talk about sitting there in silence, the two of you waiting for the doctor to return, the blank videotape they'd asked you to bring with you, sitting on the bench beside you like almost a, an incredible embarrassment, a sharp reminder of our blind, naive optimism. I mean, we just feel your grief crashing in on us as we as we read that tell us what marley did for the two of you in the wake of that sorrow well after we got home from the hospital um i helped jenny into the house and i helped her to sit down on the couch and of course she was just shattered but would not allow herself to cry she stayed dry-eyed through this whole process um and then I got her situated, and I went to let Marley out of the garage. And um, this was a, a daily occurrence for us. You know, we'd open the door, and he'd come crashing at us with just 
the joy of life emanating off him, and he'd have his big rope tie in his mouth, and he'd be flinging his tail and knocking things over and kicking up the throw rugs, and you get the picture. And on this day, I opened the door for him, and he came crashing in like normal and went looking for Jenny first thing, and I closed the door, so I was about 10 seconds behind him. And when I came around the corner into the living room, I couldn't believe my eyes. This wild, crazy dog um, was standing perfectly still with his tail flat between his legs and his head, this big, blocky Labrador head of his, just resting on her lap. And he was sitting there whimpering, looking up into her eyes. And I thought, you know, it was amazing. It, it, this transformation happened in a five or ten seconds. He came crashing around the corner, spotted her, and he instantly knew something was wrong and she was, she was sad. And, and she just looked at him for a second and she buried her face in his neck and just sobbed and wrapped her arms around him. And he just sat there and let her cry into him uh, for the longest time. And that, at that moment, I, you know, it was one of those wake-up moments that, about the empathy that these dogs can have for, for the human people who bring them into their lives. You talk about Jenny at one moment looking up and gesturing to you and gesturing you over. And uh, you join her on the couch, wrap your arms around her, and you say, the three of us stayed locked in our embrace of shared grief. And you're right. It's hard in those moments to not start to think about our dogs as not animals at all, but somehow an emotional extension of us and connected to us on a level that maybe does not make perfect scientific sense, and yet it seems so very, very real. Yes, you know, I mean, the, the skeptics will say, well, the reason dogs are loyal to humans is because humans feed them and they're, and they're trained to, you know, to the food. Um, and I'm sure there's something to that, but that doesn't tell the whole story. For instance, after we did go on to have children, um, the kids didn't feed the dog. The kids were just other members of the household, and this dog was fiercely protective of them. Um, I was the one feeding them. They were not, and and they were, and he still knew that they were part of the family, part of the pack. That's their instinct. They're pack animals, and, and that you know he was he was going to defend them and be with them, and um, you know there is an emotional connection there. Hmm. Well, eventually, you you and your wife are able to have have children, several of them actually, and as you've just touched on. Marley and the children uh, get along wonderfully well. You do mention the fact that you had this very optimistic faith that that Marley would never do anything to that first baby as you uh, brought him home. Uh, Some of your friends really wondered if you weren't being a little bit uh, foolish or foolhardy with that. But uh, your optimism proved to be justified. Well, yes, we did have a we did have a briefly terrifying moment. Uh, You know, you know when. Patrick, our firstborn, was uh, was still in the hospital. I was bringing home his baby blankets and whatnot for Marley to get used to the smell. And uh, I even brought home one of his diapers, you know. And when we finally brought Jenny and the baby home from the hospital, um, we brought he was sleeping in his little carriage thing. And I put him on the bed. And we our strategy was to just let Marley out of the garage and let him just be in the house and eventually, gradually realized that there was this baby with us and marley had no idea the baby was there at first and he was just sniffing around and happy go lucky as usual and all of a sudden patrick let out this little baby chirp and i looked at marley and my dog is pointing at the baby like a retriever in the field would point at prey he had his front paw up and his ears cocked and a second after that he lunged at the bed and my wife and I, my poor wife had just delivered, you know, 36 hours earlier. We dive at the dog, and I wrestle him away, and Jenny grabs the baby up, and um, we, and Marley was just frantic. But even in that frantic moment, we could tell that he wasn't aggressive. His tail was going, and he had that happy look in his face. He was just curious, and after we let him have a good sniff of the baby, they were best friends from that day forward, and he was a different dog when that baby was around him. He was very gentle around the baby. Even when around us, he would be 
play very rough when he was with the baby. He somehow knew that it was a different set of rules, and he would just lie quietly and let baby Patrick climb all over him, pull his ears, put his fist in his eyes, and he would never budge. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah, especially a dog like him who wasn't the smartest pupil in the class. Not the valedictorian by no, any means. No, exactly right. He, I think he was a diagnosable case of attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity thrown in. We are told all kinds of wonderful stories right up to actually the, the end of, of Marley's life. And, of course, that, that really sad moment, which... Uh, uh, I think is best read in the book, of course. Uh, if there is a moral to the story, uh, I think it's almost exactly in the middle of the book. of 280 pages on page 140, you say, no matter how complicated life became, Marley reminded me of its simple joys. In many respects, that seems like the heart and soul of the story of you and Marley. Well, yes. Um, I, I think that does get get to it, and it's it's kind of a crazy concept, and one I'm almost embarrassed to admit. But as a young man, kind of growing up as a as a husband and father and responsible adult, I was actually looking to this big dumb dog of mine and taking lessons from him. And one of the lessons was just that you know we go through life and and we are responsible for our own happiness and make the most out of what you are given. And, you know, you look at a dog, and they are not materialistic. They don't care about status symbols. They don't care about their place in society. You know, they just want to have fun. They just want to live for the moment. And, and you know, I really did take some lessons from that, and I took some career lessons from that. You know, we're, we're just going through life once. And don't let yourself get stuck in a career path or a life that you're going to look back on as an old person, and and have regrets, and you know, and, and Marley was one of those bigger than life, joyous presence. He crashed through life. He he grabbed the moment. He ran with it. <laughs> the book is Marley and Me: Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog, published by William Morrow, and the author John Grogan. John Grogan, I love this book, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on the morning show. Best wishes to you and your whole family. Thanks so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure being on.